Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles this evening, we're going to be opening our Bibles to the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah. If you're having a hard time finding it, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, it's one of the minor prophets. The book of Obadiah is, in fact, the shortest book in the Old Testament. We'll see if we can get this to work this evening. There we go. Having just 21 verses, only 67 words, 670 rather words, four questions, no promises, 30 predictions, unusual book in that it's never cited in the New Testament, but a very important book. The 137th Psalm, we understand one of the reasons why this book is important, because in Psalm 137, there's an imprecatory prayer prayed over the people of Edom, a prayer for the judgment of God to fall upon them. Why? Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. The people of Edom were cheering for the destruction of Jerusalem. And cheering for that destruction of Jerusalem, they were doing something that would bring upon them great destruction themselves. Remember a a promise that was given in the Old Testament with regard to how people treat Israel? Remember what that promise is and to whom that promise was given? God said, if you bless Israel, you will be blessed. And if you curse Israel, you'll be cursed. Who received that promise? Abraham, right? In Genesis chapter 12, God speaking to Abraham gave to Abraham an initial portion of what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. And that Abrahamic covenant has never been taken away. We read the book of of Romans in the 11th chapter and we discover God still has a purpose for Israel and all modern nations as well as all ancient nations should consider carefully how they interface with Israel. Well, the people of Edom didn't consider that carefully and you would have thought they would. Can anyone remember where the people of Edom came from? Who was the father of the Edomites? Yes, Esau was the father of the Edomites. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 36, we discover that Esau moved from where he'd been born to Mount Seir. There in Mount Seir, he began his nations, really. There were dukes who came out of Esau, who came to be the princes of Edom. And when Moses came out of the Egyptian captivity with the children of Israel, they asked the Edomites, might we come through your land? And the Edomites, family members really of the children of Israel, said, no, you can't come through our land. And so began what would be a centuries old division between these two nations until God ultimately would judge them. And the basis of the judgment wasn't just that they didn't let Moses come through. The basis of the judgment was how they treated the sons of Abraham, the children of Israel. And so in Psalm 137, the children of Israel are singing this imprecatory hymn. They're singing, may Edom be destroyed Why? Because they chanted, raise it, raise it, destroy, destroy Jerusalem, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed. And so this evening, as we look at uh, this passage to which we've turned, the book of Obadiah, uh, it's actually only one chapter, I almost said chapter one, but in Obadiah, the first verse, 
we discover a very fascinating and I think contemporary study in that it's an important study for all those who would understand how God rules among the nations. If you want to know how God interfaces with the nations, even into our era, you have a short book that teaches us a whole lot. We begin our reading in Obadiah, the first chapter, or the first verse actually, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a rumor from the Lord, an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the great gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things that Edom searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederate, confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that ate thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There's none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end, that every one of Mount Esau may be cut off by slaughter. We're going to look this evening at the book of Obadiah under this theme, the folly of misplaced trust. And we're going to have our conversation be more contemporary this evening as we look at the wisdom that God gives to the people of Edom in their day, and we ask God to give us as Christians living in America in the 21st century, wisdom from His Word that applies to the day and age in which we live as citizens of this great country, as we pray, as we vote, as we interface with others. There's tremendous wisdom in the passage to which we've turned this evening for all of us to consider as Americans. So let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word. Father, I pray that this passage in the Old Testament that means so little to so many people would burn with us, within us this evening, for it's Your Word. And Your Word is that which is necessary to make us truly furnished unto every good work. So as citizens of a country that has never been compared to any other, it seems, in blessing and liberty, Lord, help us to read this passage and apply it to our hearts as citizens, as voters, as influencers, as prayer warriors, so as to make a difference and even to turn away your wrath. So bless our considerations this evening, Lord, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Did you know that the United States of America enters into more than 200 treaties a year on average? over 200 treaties every year, and of course we're responsible for the maintaining of thousands and thousands of other treaties. We are, after all, the world's greatest superpower, and as the world's greatest superpower, we would expect that there are nuclear arms treaties into which we've entered, human rights agreements, we hear about those on the news from time to time, 
economic treaties into which we've entered, military alliances, and what is leading the news these days, global warming treaties, the Paris Accords. What are we going to do about our carbon footprint? These are relevant discussions in our day and age, and we as the world's greatest superpower are expected to lead the way on all these things. I have something to say that might surprise some people this evening. There's a whole lot that our diplomatic corps could learn if they studied the book of Obadiah. There's a whole lot in these few verses in Obadiah with regard to international intrigue and how countries can turn upon one another and how those who think themselves to be strong can very quickly be made to be discovered as very weak. As we study Obadiah, we learn a lot about agreements. and We learn a lot about treaties. The history of the ancient nation of Edom provides a powerful lesson, I believe, to the powerful nations, the modern nations today. Well, how's that? Well, if you understand the place called Edom was a very well-protected place. Getting into the nation of Edom and to the center of its political power would mean you would weave through a snake trail, a canyon, with walls of the canyon sometimes 200 and 250 feet in the air. It was a strategic place. It was a place that would be virtually impossible to attack. And yet we'll discover along the way Edom did fall. But one would have looked at this impregnable place and think no one is ever going to take the Edomites out. The Edomites, after all, were on a strategic trade route. There were two major trade routes that went through the Middle East in that time, specifically through the land of Israel. There was the way of the sea, and there was also the King's Highway. In gold on the map that I've put in front of you is the King's Highway. The King's Highway is going from Persia or modern Iran and Babylon, down on the King's Highway. It is going to be coming near Galilee, coming near the Dead Sea, and all the way down toward the bottom of the map, and you can probably not hardly make it out, but right down, you'll trust me, from the Dead Sea, if you look over from the Dead Sea to the left, you can't see it at all up there, can you? There's a place at the bottom of that yellow cord called Edom. Edom was on It looks so much better up here than it does over there, but that's all right. must be the lighting. Edom was on the King's Highway. It was a major trade route. It was a place of financial uh, financial blessing, and many of you have seen uh, this very historic picture of a place often today called Petra. This is where the Barfields served, land of Jordan. They've been there many times, but Petra... The ancient capital of Edom was called Selah, and the building that you're looking at there is probably the most um, significant building, the most beautiful, the most, photographed, most often photographed building. That was actually the treasury house, the treasury house. And this is the place where the Edomites were. And while Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament, and unlike most of the Old Testament books that were written to the land of Israel, the people of Israel... This book is written to a single nation, to a people that we've forgotten, to the Edomite people, but the warning that is being sounded toward the Edomite people is very relevant today. Every nation needs to avoid the folly of misplaced trust. The Edomites seem to have it all, strategic location, right along a trade route, 
economic advantage. They, according to verse 3, had pride in their heart, thinking that they dwelt in the cliffs of the rocks, and they had no need to worry about anything. A number of years ago, Joel Rosenberg, one of my favorite uh, prophetic novelist writers, Rosenberg wrote a book called Dead Heat, got my attention in the first few pages. In his book, Dead Heat, Joel Rosenberg, he's, this is prophetic fantasy in some, at some level, but typically quite biblically grounded. He puts forward the idea of how America gets wiped out in the future days. I'd never thought about this, and I wished after I'd read it I'd never thought about it, but I'm going to share it with you this evening anyway. If you've not read this book, here's how it begins. Four simultaneous nuclear strikes hit America on the same day. They're all short-term missiles or short-range missiles, all with nuclear warheads. They're being fired from barges off our coast. One is being fired from a barge not too far away from New York City. A second one is being fired from a barge not too far away from Washington, D.C., If you look at that map, New York City and Washington, D.C. hover ever so close to the Atlantic, right? Now, there are two more short-range nuclear warheads that are being sent, and those other two are being sent to the other coast. Over on the Pacific, you have Seattle, Washington, and you have Los Angeles, California. And with those four quick strikes mounted off of barges, off of both of our oceans, What has been wiped out? Well, the financial center of New York City, the military center, the political center of Washington, D.C., the computer center of Seattle, and the communication center of Los Angeles, California, and the United States of America just suddenly became totally unimportant with four quick missile strikes. You know, it used to be people would look at the United States of America military strategists would look at our country, especially during times like World War II, and think, you know what, if we can get some submarines out there, we can stop those German U-boats. We have the great advantage of having peace with our land borders. We don't think often of having a trouble with our neighbor to the north. And though our neighbor to the south gets a lot of chatter these days, we've not been worried too much about uh, the South American nations invading with the military force. And then the other two, you don't have a whole lot to worry about when you're surrounded by oceans on the other two. We've had this strategic military advantage that Rosenborg does us no favor at all of wiping out in one day. And when you understand a little bit about armaments, what he says makes sense, scary sense. And I bring all that to your attention because most Americans don't think that way, and neither do the people in Edom. The people in Edom had no need to worry. You had to crawl through a canyon to get to them. They had the king's highway, so they were the financial epicenter. They were the superpower of their day. And so he says in verse 3, they were in their hearts proud, but they were deceived as they dwelt in those rocks. The Edomites were filled with pride. And God's Word warns that when when we are proud, we will often fall. Pride, after all, according to Proverbs 16, goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. What were the Edomites trusting in? What was the foundation of this false pride? Well, obviously, they were trusting in their possessions. They were trusting in their possessions. Located along that popular, prosperous trade route so that they become an economic 
center of the world, a major economic center. But when God's judgment fell, the possessions of the Edomites could not protect them. And their possessions could not be protected. What do we read in verse 5? If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night. Let's skip the parenthesis for a minute. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? What's he saying? He's saying normally when a thief comes, they leave something behind. Normally when your crops are being stolen, at least there are a few grapes hanging on the vine. But the Edomites didn't have it that way. They had been, according to the parentheses, entirely cut off. Everything was gone. They were stripped to the bone. This great economic superpower found that they had no power over their possessions. After all, they had been totally decimated. And so we read in verse 6, how are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? The thieves that came into Edom knew exactly what they were coming after. They came in with a plan. They came in to wipe out that treasury, the picture of which we just saw. They came with a plan to cart everything away, to take it all. They knew the layout. Can you think of another person in the Old Testament that kind of gave away the treasury and allowed the enemy to see the whole layout? I hear it's Solomon, but I'm not thinking about Solomon. Hezekiah. Remember how Hezekiah lived longer than it was expected? And he made some really unfortunate decisions. Come with me to 1 Kings chapter 20. We'll see one of those unfortunate decisions. I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 20 that Hezekiah made in those years of kindness that God had given to him. 2 Kings chapter 20. We read beginning in verse 12. At that time, Baradak Baladan the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold. He's showing the Babylonians everything that he has. The silver, gold, the spices, the precious ointments, all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasure. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah, the prophet unto King Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men, and from whence they came unto thee? And Hezekiah said, Oh, they're come from a far country. No need to fear them. After all, they're way up there in Babylon. He said, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in my house have they seen. There's nothing among my treasure that I did not show them. And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that's in thine house that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon, and nothing shall be left. You know, it's not really wise to let your treasures be seen by those who don't really like you. Yes, that's a picture of a friendly balloon that just hovered for several days over all of our major nuclear sites. Oh, we took it out ever so brave as we are, after it had crossed over our country and circled back and crossed over again in several very strategic places, taking pictures and sending them back to China along the way. Hmm. Does history ever repeat itself? 
Well, it repeated itself in Hezekiah's days. He showed the Babylonians all that he had, and the Babylonians came and they took it. And it repeated itself in Edom's days. The children of Edom, they had shown off their treasures, if you will, to those who came and went along the king's highway, and their treasures one day went with them. So as we look in the book of Obadiah, remember I said this would be a great passage for the diplomatic corps of the United States of America to study this evening. It is indeed a great passage. Not that the Bible is against wealth altogether. We know that the Edomites were very wealthy. In fact, many of God's greatest servants were very wealthy. And I put on the outline this this evening because sometimes when we talk about wealth, we need a little bit of a disclaimer. It's not wrong for America to be a wealthy country. These are God's blessings. We shouldn't bemoan the fact that we have such tremendous natural resources. We should sing the praises of God for those resources that God has given to us. God has been very good to us, but we should be wise about that. So just a little pause along the way. Any Bible characters that you can think about who had tremendous wealth? Job. You read about all that was taken from him in that one day, including his children, and then all that was restored to him. No single man without many, many people serving with him could have ever stewarded that kind of wealth. Can you think of another? Solomon. Solomon's wealth was so fabulous that even today when you go to Israel, they'll show you the various places where Solomon kept his horses and his troops and his stables. Abraham, I heard someone say, Abraham was able to saddle up 318 of his own servants that had grown up in his own home. These were his servants to take them on into war in order to restore his nephew Lot. Yeah, the Bible tells us of some very wealthy men who were very wealthy and very wise. And even in our generation, we need to be thankful for such people and thankful for such countries. It's not wrong to be a wealthy country. There are those, I'm saying this intentionally, who almost feel a sense of shame by all the blessings and the financial benefits that America has had. And almost want to cast it overboard and say, well, you know, this is wrong for any one people to have so much wealth. Well, there's a responsibility of stewardship, and there is a warning that comes along the way when it comes to those who have great possessions. Proverbs 23, 5 says, riches make themselves wings and they fly away as an eagle. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, don't trust in uncertain riches. And the Edomites trusted in their riches. And Hezekiah trusted in his riches. And every follower of Christ needs to live as if their portfolio could quickly disappear. And every nation needs to learn to seek the supernatural resources that God can supply more than the natural resources. By this time, you know, when I study Old Testament prophecies, I'm a bit of a news junkie. I think it's fair to be a news junkie when you read the news through the lens of prophecy. It's been interesting of late to be reading what's happening with regard to the American currency. In 1944, in a place in New Hampshire that I visited called Bretton Woods, something very important happened. Does anybody know what happened in Bretton Woods in 1944? In 1944, 44 countries gathered together at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire after World War II and decided that the United States dollar, backed by gold, would become the international currency of choice. It would become uh, the currency of reserve. What does that mean? Well, the world's reserve currency means that most countries that want to have some measure of financial stability 
try to bank American dollars. They base their financial security as a country not on the gold that they have in their bank, but on the dollars that they have in their bank. And it used to be assumed that all of those dollars were backed up by gold until Richard Nixon took us away from the gold standard. Well, why did we come away from the gold standard? This is not an American history class this evening, but for those of you who like this kind of thing, what happened? Well, we had President Lyndon Johnson who had the Great Society idea. And the Great Society idea was pushing forward national debt such as we'd never seen before, and the answer to that national debt was just like it is today, the more debt you take on, the more you have to burn up those printing presses. The problem with burning up those printing presses to print dollars back in that day, a lot of the nations were seeing that happen and say, well, wait a minute, time out. This doesn't look like America's holding on to those standards very well. And so other countries started saying, you know what, we're going to make our own gold standard as well. And the price of gold started going into the stratosphere. And so Nixon came along and said, you know what, forget all that. We're not going to let gold go into the stratosphere. We're just going to take our currency and remove it from the gold standard. What is everybody else in the world going to do at that point? Everybody's based all of their stability on the dollars they have in the bank, and now they're trying to replace it with gold. So before they can do that, let's just go ahead and take the gold away from our currency. Now the gold prices went down, and everybody went, that doesn't seem right. Well, okay, move on. So we've moved on, and it's been a long time since the American dollar was as good as gold. There is no gold standard. And when there is no gold standard, when the presses are printing like the presses are printing today, uh, people who are basing all of their fortunes on our currency start saying, hmm, I don't know if we can trust that the Americans are acting very wisely. Maybe we should run for gold. Uh, what's happened recently? You know what Brazil said recently? You know what? We're not going to base all of our trade on the dollar as our reserve currency any longer. Let's base some of our trade now on the Chinese yuan. And so there are countries, major countries today, that are saying, let's move away from the American dollar standard and let's move over into some Chinese standard. Okay, put your thinking cap on for just a moment. What's going to happen to your, for, your uh, 401k if suddenly the dollar is no longer the national standard. It's going to tank, right? So you hear a lot of chatter about this. It's not inordinate chatter. If I just lost a few of you, sorry. Uh, I know it's Wednesday night. You just had Connie's lasagna, and there's nothing better, right? But this is the world in which we're in, and what we're doing tonight is saying it's not unlike what was happening in Edom. In fact, it's very parallel to what was happening in Edom. Edomites were living high on the hog. Everything was great with them. They had tremendous possessions until they didn't. I was over in Zambia a number of years ago, went to the market with a missionary. I'm sure you're all aware of this, but the Zambian currency is called the kwacha. You're familiar with the kwacha? I wasn't either until I was amazed by it when the missionary went to the market, literally a fanny pack that stuck out about a foot. What's in the fanny pack? All bills, kwacha. All Zambian kwacha. It takes maybe 200,000 kwacha to buy a bunch of bananas. 200,000 kwacha. Well, the Zambian kwacha is worth more than the uh, 
Malawian kwacha today. I just ran the number on it this afternoon. Every dollar you spend in a Malawian kwacha, the exchange rate is this, $1 for 102,644 Malawian kwacha. So to go to the grocery store with a Malawian kwacha and buy a $5 gallon of milk is going to cost you over half a million kwacha. Well, that means you have to, I mean, you can take million-dollar notes with you and ask the German people about the Weimar Republic when they were going down the streets with wheelbarrow loads of, of bills to buy a loaf of bread. These things have happened historically over and again. It happened to Edom. Edomites thought they had it all until they didn't. They were depending upon their possessions. They were depending upon their position. They enjoyed so peaceful the relationships they had with these other countries until they weren't. They came like thieves and took everything. Verse 7, all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. And the men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They eat thy bread and have laid a wound under thee. There's none understanding in him. So you had all of these wonderful, peaceful treaties until you didn't. And you learn along the way that human relationships can deceive and even disappoint us. And you realize that the Word of God says that in the last days when perilous times come, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, one of the characteristics of the end times is men will be truce breakers. And in verse 4, men will be traitors. So I did a very un-American thing, and I'm confessing it before a very American crowd. I googled the question today, how many treaties has America broken? And I got choked up just a little bit and didn't read too much further after I read of all of the treaties that we broke with the Native Americans. By the time we turned the page into the 1900s, we already not had dozens, but scores and even hundreds of treaties that we'd broken. So we shouldn't be surprised when others are truce breakers and traitors if we are willing to tolerate that as well. And it broke my heart to read it. I've got to tell you, I prayed for our country a little bit more because I realize what you sow, you'll also reap. Well, the Edomites, they had all kinds of treaties and all kinds of friends until they didn't. And they have pictures there before you that are a little bit blurry, but some of us can, are old enough to remember the people on the rooftops in Saigon with the helicopters coming in and people scrambling and hoping. And recently we saw similar pictures in Afghanistan. And there are a lot of broken hearts. Because that represents the goodwill of our country toward others who often are very innocent and very dependent. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Friends, you can't always depend on those who have made treaties with you. Less than 20 years ago, oh, a little over 20 years ago, that the Russians and the Ukrainians sat down with the Americans and the British and the Ukrainians signed away all their nuclear armaments with a promise from Russia that they would never invade Ukraine. How's it going? Not real well. I got a text today from Lee. Hey, where's Derek Tom 
Thomas and Julie today. And I said, I think they're still over in Ukraine. He said, just got a notice of bomb- bombers that are going into Kiev as payback for what they said was someone trying to take out Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin. So I had texted quickly on WhatsApp, Derek Thomas. I said, Derek, where are you today? He said, just flew into Amsterdam yesterday, heading to the United States on Friday. I said, thankful. I'm so, I'm so thankful to see it because they have an apartment that they still maintain in Kiev. And Kiev had many people who died today. But those were people who depended on a treaty not too many years ago struck between two nations. They had position. They had possessions. They had a lot of things along the way. They had a perception along the way. The perception along the way, according to verse 8, was, shall I not in that day, said the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? Of all the places in the world where there was wisdom, certainly this place called Edom was a place known for its wisdom. Here was a great cataloging of a library. Here lived the great intelligentsia of its day. Edom was a cosmopolitan trade center. Everybody that was anybody had been to Edom. And even so, today, around the world, there are such cosmopolitan cities where academics are worshipped. Education seems to be the end all. Advanced degrees are considered something wonderfully to be attained. And we forgot that knowledge puffeth up. You see, degrees and diplomas can be earned in classrooms, but wisdom comes from above. I like what Les Olalaw used to say. I heard him say it a number of times, and it stuck. Les Olalaw used to say, you can have so many degrees, they call you Fahrenheit, and still not be hot for God. I like that. It's really not about all the advanced degrees. It's really about acting with wisdom. And I can tell you something. Some of the wisest people I've ever met, including my own grandparents, had no degrees, including high school. Boy, they had wisdom. There's a difference. God can give wisdom. It comes from His Word by the power of His Spirit. And that's what we ought to be attaining and seeking after, according to the book of Proverbs. So I put a little question here. Why not? Can you think of some false theories that are currently being promoted by the intelligentsia, the academic elites of our nation? And you read, think about these things. You think, that's crazy. Lloyd? Critical race theory, which really becomes the foundation of a higher level of racism than our country has ever faced. Can you think of another? Climate change. Climate change. No real empirical proof, but everybody assumes it's right because, I mean, I mean, if Al Gore says it's right, it's got to be right. It's science. It's science. Right. Can you think of some other? Evolution is the classic one, absolutely, evolution. And, uh, but it doesn't work. That's all right. We all assume it together. We're all equally unwise. Can you think of some others? And the gender orientation thing. I saw a video clip this week, and I was so thankful for a, a seventh, year, seventh grade boy standing up in front of a school board who got in trouble in his school because he wore a shirt that said there are only two genders. They told him he had to go home and change his shirt. He came before the school board and he said, you know what, I don't tell people they have to take down the rainbow flags. And I, I don't, 
confront people who wear their shirts saying other things in the school. Why is it that you're picking on only me? And I think he said something to the point was, there really are only two genders. He's in seventh grade, he's figured that out. But people with PhDs can't figure that out anymore. Yeah, what's happening? Well, you can depend on your intelligence until you can't. And of course, all these things fit into the same consideration. Because they had all of this, the Edomites thought themselves to be powerful. And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of them of Mount Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Edom's military might and lofty fortresses could not prevent the destruction of the Edomites. History tells us that the Edomites were destroyed in the late 6th or early 5th century B.C. The Nabataeans from northern Arabia came and invaded them. These worshipers of gods and goddesses of fertility and celestial bodies. How did they do it? Well, it's kind of a Trojan horse story. The Nabataeans came up through that channel into that great city. They promised a great banquet in the Edomite territory, and so they brought in everything that was necessary for the great banquet. And then rather than offering a banquet, they offered a battle. They killed the guards, and they conquered Edom. They made the Edomites resettle into the lowlands, and the Edomites became the Edomians. And the Edomians, who no longer lived in the mountains, had a very precocious child. And the precocious child's name was Herod the Edomian, the great architect of Israel during the time of Christ. His ancestors went back to the Edomites. And why do we talk about all this this evening? Hopefully you'll build a prayer burden. Hopefully you'll build a prophetic lens for reading today's news. And as you build that prophetic lens for reading today's news, pray that what we have inscribed on our coins would once again be inscribed in our hearts. In God we trust. The only way any nation can ever truly stand is if they stand on that. In God we trust. We can't trust our position, our possessions. We can't trust in the pride of our attainments. We can't trust in our powers. But we can trust in God. And may God help us to realize that while sometimes we feel like a remnant in the world in which we're called to live and serve, God hears the remnant. So may this remnant cry out to God tonight in the day and age in which we're now living. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.